Um, in 2006, the American-led coalition that was um, engaged in Iraq uh, was in the beginning of what would become a little bit of an insurgency. Uh, ISIS, this small little fractional terrorist group, was starting to gain steam in Iraq. And, and in an attempt to both uh, retrieve and remove American soldiers from the combat scene, there was a recognition that if, if the American-led coalition doesn't strengthen and equip the Iraqi security force, then the Americans were never going to be able to leave Iraq. And this was something that dominated our headlines and the time before ISIS was starting to gain steam. But in this tiny providence that still, for the last 10 years, dominates the news cycle, the Anbar Providence, was a strategic city, um, this strategic city that has been the site of battles again and again and again and again, Ramidi. It's a city that most of us have never heard. We've never even imagined wanting to visit there. But for the last 10 years, it's been a center point of this struggle for the Iraqi people trying to regain control from some of the terrorist forces that were unleashed in the wake of uh, the kind of Iraqi um, invasion. And this force of ISIS, actually even in that time, was had a stronghold in the city of Ramidi. And the... Um, the American government decided that we need to reclaim that space. And so what they did, and this is, I have to be honest, I have a bit of a, like a man crush, if you want to call it that, on Navy SEALs. I, I think that they're like incredible. And so the American government uh, said, we've got to reclaim this space. So what they did is they took one of the most elite Navy SEALs teams and tasked them with leading uh, this insurgent takeover of the city. And uh, at the time, a guy named Leif Babson was over this elite sniper team uh, division of SEAL Team 6. And in fact, within SEAL Team 6, there were two elite sniper teams. One of them uh, actually had Chris Kyle, who would later become known as the American Sniper. And that would kind of dominate uh, Clint Eastwood's movie that would gather awards and kind of raise attention to this group. But um, this is the context. Chris Kyle was literally in this first major battle to fight for this strategic city. And so in, in kind of the planning, they decided that one sniper team was going to set up on one side and another sniper team was going to be set up on the other side. And they were going to kind of coalesce on this small section of the city where insurgents or the Mujahideen had kind of set up camp. These were the, the warriors and they were really aggressive, and they knew they needed to bring kind of the full force. And so Leif Babson, they leave early that morning. It's before the sun rises. Sniper teams are traveling to get into position. The Iraqi security forces that they've been training are going to move in in the counterattack and kind of swoop in and flank. And as Leif Babson's driving through the city um, before the sun is risen in a Humvee with a huge machine gun mounted on top, he starts to hear in his radio a code that means we need a quick response. This code that says from this sniper team set up over here that we're under attack. And as he's beginning to direct the Marine Corps kind of that he's traveling with, that we need to turn around and go and assist our one of the sniper teams in his in division, he hears another call on the radio that's an even heightened alert from the other sniper team. Now they're being outgunned. 
And so he reroutes, and they begin to rush as quickly as possible with Humvees, with machine guns, Abram tanks, with these huge artillery shells, and they're flying through the streets. A sun hasn't even come up yet, and they arrive at this building where this battle is going on. There's bullet holes everywhere, and the, this, this team of Navy SEALs are, are trying to run and attack this building. But the force, whoever's the, this, like... The insurgents inside have put up such a heavy fight that they've literally held off this entire team of elite fighters. And Leif Babson walks up, and as the commander takes control and says, what's happening? And they said, well, these are the toughest Mushahideen we've ever fought. They've been able to keep us back for the last hour. They've killed one of our men. They've already injured a couple. And this is really intense and, and as Leif Babson's standing there, he's looking around. He's like, this doesn't feel right. He sees a lot more Iraq uh, security forces than should be there. And he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take one of my men, and we're going to swoop around from the side, and we'll catch up, kind of sneak up on him. You just hold him. And so Leif Babson goes around the corner of the building. He has one of his guys with him, and they kick open the door, you know, like all Jack Bauer style, style because they're Navy SEALs, so that's what they do. And as they bust through the door and they bring their guns down on the Mujahideen, what they find is it's the other Navy SEAL strike team. That one Navy SEAL team outside the building had been engaged for two hours in a gunfight with the other Navy SEAL sniper team inside the building. And in that moment, which is famous in Navy SEALs, uh, Navy SEALs kind of records, is because outside of Vietnam, that is the second deadliest blue-on-blue blue, Navy SEAL-on-Navy SEAL friendly fire attack in their history. See, in the subsequent kind of investigation and breakdown of trying to figure out what happened, how did one of our sniper teams end up in a gunfight with the other sniper team. And that's why neither team could win. I mean, these are some of the sharpest, best fighters in the world engaged in a gunfight, and, and people's lives were lost. And one of the things that came out of the conversation was this, con, this comment, this description that had been introduced into warfare uh, kind of nomenclature about 100 years before. It's this idea called the fog of war. And the fog of war is this idea that was introduced in a kind of a military text. And it's this sense that in the middle of a battle, and in the intensity of the battle, what starts to happen is that you can become confused and disoriented, that your emotions, your adrenaline can cause you to kind of lose the ability to perceive correctly. And what can happen is that all of a sudden, what was very clear is now foggy, cloudy, and confusing. And that one of the dangerous realities of the fog of war is that oftentimes friendly fire starts to happen. And people's lives are lost, not from this and the enemy, but the same team starts to kill one another. And the fog of war, I don't think it's just limited to war. I think that dynamic is actually really similar to life. You could call it the fog of stress. Because there's a lot of parallels to when we find ourselves pressing into the mess that oftentimes we find ourselves in. That maybe over the last couple of weeks, you've kind of heard the cry, like, let's, 
Let's continue. Let's press into the mess of our lives. Let's, let's tackle some of those biggest challenges, some of the biggest limitations that we've experienced. And oftentimes, if you're willing to take that step, it gets worse before it gets better. That the moment you try to confront your spouse or you try to have that conversation with your kid or you start to talk to that coworker, things start to fall apart. And it gets worse before it gets better. And it's because I think we're experiencing the fog of stress. And as we wrap up the series, what I wanted to do today was deal with the reality that as we go through our lives and we make a conscious decision to move towards the better way of living, that we recognize that the way to get there is to go through this season where we deal with conflict and where we address the mess in our lives. But it would be unfair for me to say, oh, that's all you have to do is just step in and it'll get better. Because the reality is, is that when you step in, it probably gets worse. And that that dynamic, this fog of stress, is what I want to talk about navigating this morning. How do you navigate? And here's the disclaimer. Some of you are not in a mess right now. And this, this is for your future notes, because can I just be politely blunt to you? Mess is coming. We all know that. A mess is just waiting on the horizon to step into our lives. It's a guarantee. So this just may be for future reference. For some of you, this is exactly where you are, and this will be helpful because you'll say, oh, this is what's happening in my life, and this is how I can start to navigate that. And for some of you, you're watching a loved one who's walking through this, and this can be a sense of an equipping for you so that you can come alongside of them and help them and assist them. Because this fog of war was not invented when von Clausen wrote his own warfare in early 1900s. This, this dynamic of fog of war has been a reality ever since we first stepped into this planet and started making decisions that were unwise. And I want to go back 2,500 years from today. I want to jump into a letter written 2,500 years ago that I think gives us some clarity around this idea of the fog of stress and not just how to recognize when we're in it and what, what's kind of the characteristics of it, but also how do we navigate our way through it. And so some of this is going to be new, some of this may be old, but I, I think it's going to be a fun ride because we're going to jump into a text that is worth memorizing. It's that, it's that encouraging. It's that uplifting. If you have the Encounter Church app that Jason referenced earlier, you can go ahead and click on message notes, and it's already loaded for you. If um, you don't, you can feel free to download it, and you'll find that while I'm speaking, the, the text that I'm referencing at the time will actually be on the screen behind me. Um, but it's found in Isaiah chapter 40. And Isaiah is an interesting book. It's written, like I said, about 2,500 years ago. Um, the time frame is a really tumultuous time frame. It's a really challenging time frame. And uh, the people are going through what can only be characterized as a mess. Probably one of the most intense messes that they, any of them had ever gone through their entire life. You see, in chapter 40, what you have in a time frame wise is that these people, the, the Jewish people, have been led into exile. And what that means is that they, as a nation, had been attacked by foreign forces. And these foreign forces were not just destructive, but they were deliberate in deconstructing too. They wouldn't just come in and defeat you and then leave you and you were kind of like under their, their mantle and you had to operate as one of them. They would actually come in, defeat you, then they would cart you all back to their land. It'd be forbidden to speak in your native tongue. 
They would start to deconstruct your language. They would take your children and they would put your children through their schools. And the goal was not just to defeat you. It was to eradicate you as a people forever. That was the level of tenacity that the foreign invaders that Israel finds themselves engaging when is, is happening at this time pain. Like the, the, literally the Jewish people, if you ever see modern Hebrew, um, to get nerdy for a second, that's in the Aramaic script. Prior to the exile, the Hebrews had a different way of writing. They literally lost their alphabet during this time frame. They almost lost their identity. So this is intense. And Isaiah writes this letter to them at this period of time, knowing that they are in a mess. That they are completely engulfed by this fog of stress. And, and in the midst of writing this letter, in these um, four verses, five verses, um, Isaiah lays out a helpful pattern for us. He helps us to understand what the fog of stress looks like, but then he actually starts to lay out a plan to navigate your way through it. Isaiah 40, verse 27, uh, he, he says, Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know, and have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youth grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. You see, in verse 27, he kind of lays out this uh, conversational. It's an imaginary dialogue based on the reality of where these people are. And, and they begin the dialogue with complaining with kind of saying, God has forgotten us. God is not even aware. And, and in verse 27, what you see is a snapshot of someone who's caught in the fog of stress. And maybe you don't necessarily resonate with the words they use, but if you're in the middle of that fog of stress, you do resonate with the, the attitude and the confusion that caused those words to spill out. You see, when we're in the fog, what happens is it's a lot like being in a real fog. Things get cloudy, and they get confusing. And one of the things that gets confusing is emotions. I don't know if you've ever noticed when you're stressed, and you're in that season, or you're walking through a difficult time period, stress gets overwhelming. And the first thing that starts to get clouded is your emotions. See, the tendency... The healthy tendency is that you have emotions. But when you're in the fog of stress, your emotions have you. And that's a different world to live in, isn't it? It's one thing when you have emotions. You've got anger, you've got frustration, you've got happiness. It's another thing when you're at the control of your emotions because they have you. And it starts to get a little harder to control them. You, you notice it typically in that you're overwhelmed the, the smallest thing just feels crippling to you, right? It's, you're in this overwhelming place, and then you're at a restaurant, and they get your order wrong, and you just, you cannot believe it, right? And you just feel it coming up. And all it is is that they, they give you a baked potato instead of a sweet potato that's been baked. I mean, that's all. But no. No, you alert the press because what's about to go down here needs to be witnessed by people. 
Because this is an injustice. This is a travesty. And your voice gets louder and people start looking like, did someone spit in the food? And it's just, no, you just got a baked potato. But you know what I'm talking about? It's like you're already stressed. That one little thing breaks you. And you and I have experienced that. And that's one of those like indicators that you are in fact in this fog of stress. And it's not just the overwhelmed thing, it's the overreactive thing that comes with it. And that it starts to kind of bubble up inside of you and you're frustrated and you can't believe. It's just like this small thing gets so big and you find yourself screaming and getting louder or just doing the opposite and just wanting to retreat further and further and further and feel more and more defeated. There's just this overreaction, this overwhelmingness. And it clouds your thinking, right? There, it's communication. Have you, have you ever noticed it's really hard to be clear in communication when you're overwhelmed with stress? Like, I've never had an argument with my wife that is clear and simple when we're both stressed. It's like, it's confusing. It's like, what are we even talking about anymore? I don't know. I'm just angry. I don't even know why I'm angry. It's just this confusion. You can do it with our friends, with our family, with our coworkers. It's just when you're in the middle of it, it just keeps getting bigger. And it, I don't know if you notice this, but it starts to get harder to think. And you're, you're, you're like, I don't know. My thoughts feel scattered. There's just when you're in the middle of a fog, it's hard to get clarity. And what happens is friendly fire. People around you start to suffer because you start to take shots at them. And that's what we see in verse 27. They're, they're taking shots at God. But it's not just God. It's, it's this whole idea, is when you elevate it to the theological level, but it really is not that profound. It's actually quite simple. If you've had a really hard day at work, and you walk in the door, and you haven't processed that, and you're walking into this fog, and then your, your kid says something, or your roommate says something, or your spouse says something, and all of a sudden, because they didn't bring, you, you forgot the milk, or because you didn't remember to do this one, like whatever, or the fact they haven't cleaned up their room yet, you just get angry, and all of a sudden, all the emotion, all the frustration, all that overwhelming gets dumped on them. Or maybe you've been the recipient of someone dumping it on you, and you just said, hey, how was your day? And it's like, I'll tell you about my day. And it just gets dumped on you. That's what happens when we're living in the fog and we're not even aware of it. We start to engage in friendly fire, and we end up hurting those people closest to us. We haven't done anything wrong, or it's just minor what they did. And it's not just with our friends, our family, our roommates, our children, our coworkers, or even strangers who happen to be the recipient of cutting you off right after you just had a really intense argument with your boss that we overspill. We do it with God, too. That we have so much turbulence on the inside, so much frustration on the inside, it starts to spill out, and whoever, whatever can, can be there to get blamed for it, or to catch it, we just let it fall on them. Because there's so much on the inside of us, we start to feel paralyzed and confused, and it feels better when you can blame someone. It feels better when you can lash out 
That's why we do it to our spouse. That's why we do it to our children. Because in that moment, it feels better. Because you've got so much pressure building up on the inside, that little bit of pressure release kind of drops it down some. And maybe I'm the only one in the room who knows that. Because I'm the one that experiences it. But I at least see these people walking through the same struggle where there's so much stress and pressing in on of this mess of this exile that they start to just, they just start to blame it on everyone, including God himself. And they start to say, God, you've forgotten about us. You, you don't even care anymore. And God lovingly, in verse 28, starts to pivot the conversation. He says, do you not know and have you not heard? He's like, simmer down. Take a breath. Do you even, are you listening to yourself right now? Do you hear? Do you know? He's like, let me, let me hit the switch for you. Because you're rolling around in this fog and you have no idea what's happening. And what he does is he makes this switch and he pulls it off their circumstances. This is, this is powerful. The switch he makes is he pulls, it, he pulls off them focusing on their circumstances and he pivots to his character. He says, let's start all over. Hey, I'm God, the everlasting one. And then he continues in verse 29. He's like, I'm the creator of the ends of the earth. Like, you only see this one circumstance. All you can see is this tiny bit of fog. But he's like, I, I see to the ends of the earth. He's like, I'm not tired. I'm not weary. And in my understanding, none of you can rival. That he, he makes this transitional switch for them. He hits the bulb, and it's actually really helpful. Here's the first thing that's just being aware of. Just learning how to recognize being in the fog of stress is the first thing. Because if you're driving down the road and you hit a patch of fog, you can't keep driving the way you've been driving, can you? That doesn't work. Because all of a sudden, you're in a different place with different challenges, with different pressures. And what do you have to do? If your car has fog lights, you turn them on and you slow down. You've got to adjust. You adjust your expectations. If you thought you were going to make it there in 15 minutes, nope. It's 20 now. Because you've, you've got to scale it back a little bit. And God's wanting to help them make that switch. He's like, let's turn on your fog light and let's, let's transition to realizing we're in a different place. And in the fog, you've got to think differently. He says, you've got to switch from confusion to clarity. Most confusion when you're in the fog is rooted around in your, your focus and your circumstances. Most of us fall into this trap pretty easily. That most of us are, are like stress indicator, our happiness indicator, our, our confidence indicator is completely tied to our circumstances. How good's job, how good's home life, how good's dating life, how good fill in the blank, my checking account, how good the stock market is going. All of it's tied to our circumstances, which when our circumstances is good, works out. But the problem is when you have your trust in your circumstances, when that's what you're rooted in, it makes it easier to go into the fog. Because what happens when you lose your job? Or what happens when the stock market goes down? Or what happens when you have an argument? Or what happens when your kids look at you and say, I hate you, and all you did was ask them to clean their room? All of a sudden, all this like nice, polite things that you've built your circumstances have imploded on you. And now you've gone from hope because your hopes and circumstances to hopelessness because your circumstances just fell apart. 
And he's like, quit thinking about your circumstances. Start thinking about my character. Let that be your reference point. Change the way you think. Let me be your starting point and your reference point. Let me be the light that pierces through the fog. Let me switch your confusion and give you clarity because when your hope is in his character, it doesn't matter what the fog is, you have a light to shine through it. And I know that's a subtle thing, but I'm telling you, that, that's a game changer by itself. Just learning to recognize, wait, I, I put a lot of hope and trust in my circumstances. But if I pivot and put my hope in him, then my circumstances, I don't rise and fall based on that. Can I just get real, real? I discovered a lot of people's hope a couple Tuesdays ago. Because a lot of people had put a lot of hope in what happened on election day. And you see, you see the end result of both sides. But I slept good Tuesday night, not because I'm not concerned, but because my hope's not in my circumstances. It's in the character of God. Yes, I see the fog, but I got a light. Yes, I see my circumstances, but he sees it all. He's not surprised. He's not caught off guard. He wasn't threatened. He wasn't watching Wolf Blitzer trying to figure out what's about to happen. Right? He's like, you've got to shift. When you're in the fog, you've got to shift from circumstance thinking to character thinking. And put your hope in that. But then he says, you need to shift. He keeps going, right? From paralysis to perspective, he says that, that he does not get tired or weary. His, there's no understanding that you can even fathom. That when we're caught in the fog, what tends to happen is we get paralyzed. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to respond to our spouse when they said that to us. We feel all of that stuff bubbling up into us, and you're just like, I don't know how to respond to that. Or when you really hit an incredible season of stress, you, you just want to shut down and get in a fetal position. You, you want to say things like, I'm not sure I can do this anymore. or I'm not sure I can stay in this relationship. I'm not sure I can go to that job anymore. You start to hear those things come out of you, and that's because that fog tends to produce this, this paralysis inside of you. And he says, look, I don't get tired or weary in fact, he says in verse 29, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. And he uses two words that are really helpful. Tired and weary are not the same thing in this passage. Tired is because you're overexerted. You're doing so much. You're exhausted. Weary is that the circumstances have pushed on you so much you're just spent. The tired is from what's going on the inside. The weary is about what's pressing in from the outside. He's like, I want to make sure you, you have, I'm painting the full picture. I don't get worn out by what I'm doing, and I don't get worn out by what people are doing to me. He said, but you do. He says, by shifting and switching on the light and by focusing on my character, you can switch from paralysis to perspective. And he says that, this is so interesting. He says, even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. He, he's, 
he's making this really, really profound point that youth, right? I've got a four and a half year old, soon to be five next month. That child wears me out. Can I just be honest? Chase me. I'm like, can I lay on the case, the couch and chase you with my mind? Because I'm tired. I can't go on. She's just got energy. It's like she wakes up in the world. She is ready. And she goes to bed at night. Hard, it's hard to go to sleep at bed because she's got so much energy. I'm like, where's that stuff coming from? Because I don't have that. And, and Isaiah is like, even you, those nonstop energy machines, every once in a while they get tired and weary too. And then he uses this word young men, but young men doesn't capture it. What he's really saying is the young men would be the select, elect group of people. They would be the Navy SEALs. If this was like in a military conversation, um, when I say young men, and I'm using the same word Isaiah does in Hebrew because that's what this was originally written in, the, the only word would be the Navy SEALs. He's like, even the most elite, trained, strongest of you, even they stumble and fall. And he's making a point that brings a little bit of humility to us because some of us don't want to admit that we're in a this fog of stress, because we don't want people to know that things bother us. You don't want people to know that you're struggling. You don't want your spouse to know that what she said hurt you. You don't want your kids to know that what they said just cut a little dagger into your heart. Or that your coworker got under your skin. you got to keep it together. You can't let anyone see. And he's like, look, no one is exempt from the fog. No one. We have all been in it, and we will all go back into it. The only question is how much time we spend in the in-between. And he's calling out this humility that says, look, no one is exempt, and accept that. Quit, quit trying to drive 70 miles per hour when you're going through fog. It doesn't work. It's dangerous. But then he introduces this idea, right, where he says that he can renew their strength. And this is, I think, one of the biggest things. You don't hear anything else, just hear this. You don't even have to believe in God to get this. This this is a freebie for anyone in this room. He says to them, this is a life season. It's not a life sentence. Because when you're in a fog of war, when you're in the fog of stress, it feels like it will never end. My singleness will never end. I will never get married. Or we will never have the marriage that I want us to have. I mean, whatever, you find yourself in it, and those thoughts start to creep in because that's what happens when you're in the fog of stress is it feels forever. And, And God's whispering to us, this is just a life season. It's not a life sentence. It'll pass. It's not forever. It's just a life season. If, if you're a parent of a newborn, it's a life season, not a life sentence. I remember thinking, I'm never going to sleep again. I miss sleep. I remember that those first eight weeks being like, I used to be good at it. Not good at it anymore. But it's a life season, not a life sentence. And he's saying, look, I'll renew you. This doesn't have to be your forever. And it's a whole lot easier to navigate a journey when you realize you're not going to be in it forever, isn't it? If you know that there's a finish line around the corner, it's easier to press through. 
And then he makes this last promise, and I want to spend a little, uh, just a few minutes unpacking it before I wrap up, because this is, the, this is the, the big deal. Verse 31, he says, But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is where the fog light, this is where the promise, this is where it gets good. He's like, verse 27, 28, 29, and 30, yep, it's bad. Yeah, you get tired. Yeah, you get weary. He says, but in 31, but. And it's like, this is a big but. This is big. So I know that's your reality. I know that's where you find yourself, but, which is good, because it's not permanent. He says, I will renew their strength. I will allow them. But he, and here's the indicator. So he wants to not only just take us from being confused to having clarity, he not only wants to switch us from paralysis to this perspective that he's still in control, he also wants to take our weakness and give us strength. And he says, the key, the key to doing that is for those who put their hope in me. Right? You notice that where he says, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. That's the exchange. He's like, on all your weakness, I want to give you strength. And the way you activate that strength is putting your hope in me. Which I know is like, what, what, what in the world does that even mean? That sounds really good, right? That's like a nice little bumper sticker. That's a nice little Bible verse to print out and put on a post-it note. But what does that mean? So in like five minutes, I want to I answer that question for you. When he says, put your hope in me, here's the first challenge that we have in understanding it. It is a paradox. And a paradox means fancy. It's two things are happening simultaneously or both true. When we say, God, we're weak, I need you to give me strength like you promised. The paradox is in that you still feel weak, and yet you have strength. And what I mean is that you're not, his promise is not that I'm going to give you strength internally, and it's your strength. He says, I'm going to give you my strength. And my strength doesn't register with your strength. You don't feel any different. When you pray, God, give me strength, and he gives it to you. Why? Because it's not your strength. It's his strength. It's, it's a weird thing, and I think experientially that creates problems. We can pray, God, give me strength to make it through this season because I just got told I have cancer, and I'm not sure. Or I just got a pink slip, and I'm not sure. God, can you give me strength? And the thing is, when you ask him, he gives it to you, but it doesn't feel like it's anything different. Because you still feel weak because it's not your strength. It's his strength. I think I probably just confused you all with that. Because that's a strange thing. It'd be like putting on headphones and hearing another voice and not knowing you have headphones on. It's this outside force coming into your life. So let me break it down. So um, a few years ago, my wife decided we were going to get rid of all of our furniture and go modern and do Ikea. And so we went to Ikea, and we, all of our, all our living room furniture is gone. And you're walking through the store. It was like my first real experience um, at Ikea. I, I have to confess, I do not like shopping. Um, my wife gets one day a year where I go shopping with her. Like shopping makes me itch. It is the fog. 
All right, I step into the fog when I walk into a shopping center. And, and so I'm in Ikea, and Ikea looks good. You've got all these beautiful sets. You walk into these living rooms, you're like, that is awesome. I can see that. being. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, this is even better. Oh, my goodness, look at that couch. Man, look at the price, right? And you start to get excited. And I'm like, oh, well, well, do we just get it delivered? Like, how does this work? And, no, no, we got to go to the warehouse. And we got this long running sheet of all these things we want. And so we walk into the warehouse, and it is like this multi-story, I mean, massive facility. And then you kind of begin to navigate your way, and four hours later, you come out on the other side, and you have 27 boxes for like three items. And it was like, I showed up with my Buick. I wasn't prepared. But now I'm a man, and I'm an idiot, and I'm convinced I can get all of that into the Buick. So I'm like jamming things in and be like, no, Ella can sit on boxes. She doesn't need a car seat, right? And you're just jamming things in. You're strapping things to the top of the car and saying, as long as I don't make a left-hand turn, we can make it home. And you get all that stuff jammed in and shoved in, and then you get home, and then you open it up, and there's 27 boxes, and you open up, and you realize two things. One is that a caveman wrote the instructions. You're like, why are these cave drawings? What is up with this? Like, like, no instructions. It's literally caveman drawings. And you're like, okay, I gotta go get my, like, I'm gonna go get my Phillips head deal and my, my drill. I'll be okay. And then you realize they put these weird hex bolts and then this weird S-shaped thing that's supposed to put together all of it. And it's like, 127 bolts will construct this. And, and they give you this S-shaped hex bolt. And you're like, what, do I, what is that? And so I start putting things, and you got to go in sequential order, box one, box two, box three to get that. And so I'm, like, going through, and by, like, by box two, my hand is, like, disfigured. I'm pulling muscles I didn't even know I could pull in my hand. I'm like, I didn't even know that was a muscle, and it hurts, and this is me. And then you go left hand, and you make it to box three, but now your left hand's disfigured. You can't even use your hands anymore. And at that point, I start to hate Ikea. Because I'm like, we don't have any furniture in our living room. Our living room is that. <laughs> and so we have to go back because the next day there were more things. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I hate this store. And um, while walking out, I noticed that they have some drill bits for that little stupid screw that's in all their boxes. And so I'm like, oh, I buy it. And I get home, and I'm a new man. My hands are still like this, and I'm driving like this. But I walk in the door, I grab out, I grab my drill, I put the bit in, I walk up to the first, first box, and it's like, Z, 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 Z. And then box four, box five, and an hour later, everything's starting to come together, and things are looking good, and my hands feel good. And what I have what I have done is I have experienced the dynamic that Isaiah is presenting to us. That I was able to do far more than I thought I could do in my own strength because I was depending on an outside power to do it for me. And that's what I mean because of the paradox difference. As when, I, when I'm doing it with a drill, it makes sense. And what Isaiah is saying to us is, look, I will give you access to my power. You just got to trust me. And by faith, access it. And it is, it is the exact same dynamic 
of leaning into him and saying, God, you can do this, even if I don't feel like I can. I still had to pull the trigger. That was my faith step. That was my trust step. That was my dependency. And for some of us, where we are right now, what this passage looks like is when it gets practical, it means that we don't walk away from our marriage even though we feel like it's dead. It means we press into it a little bit more because I may not have the power, but I can pull a trigger and gain power and gain access to strength that's outside of me. And that means in the heat of the argument, I am not going to turn and walk out like I've done before. I'm going to stay and I'm going to stand and I'm going to speak in love. And when you start to practice this, when you start to learn that you can't walk one more step and then you say, God, but I know you can, and you take that next step and you find even though you're tired, you're still able to do it. When you start to do that, what you start to do is you start to learn how to walk in faith. And here's the crazy thing. This is why it's a paradox. is because the entire time you're doing it, you will not feel like you're doing it well because you'll still feel tired. You'll still feel exhausted. You'll still feel overwhelmed and overspent. But all along, you keep pulling that trigger, and things start coming together. And soon, you get on the other side of the fog, and you look back, and you realize, we did build a better marriage, or I did build a better relationship with my child, or I did build a better financial position for my family, or I am in a better, better career path. But you have to keep walking and pulling and walking and pulling and trusting and leaning and moving and going. And by doing that over and over, each one of those faith steps is building something far bigger than you can realize. That if you're single and you're in this season and you want this husband or this wife that has this character and you're like, all that keeps coming in front of me is scrubs, are losers, and you're like, I, I got standards, but I also have dreams. And what that looks like with that step and that pull is to say, I'm not giving up on my standards. And God, by faith, I believe that you can, you can meet my standards. At the same time, you can satisfy my desire. And you keep walking through that season. But that's what Isaiah invites us into, that in every area of our life, we have an opportunity to engage by faith. 